Well, no announcement applause this morning. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you for covering all that, Pastor Tom. I uh, There's so much to say about what we're going through, what we're planning for and everything, and it's tempting to launch from all of that and to take all of our message time and fill in some of the details and things like that. And I will try not to, but I do want to follow up just a little bit of what he said, because we do recognize that we have quite a healthy, substantive church body that is not in this room or in the Beely Center right now, um, that is staying connected in some way, shape, or form to the ministry of faith. And so while I have a tendency to look at a room of 600-some-odd chairs and say, well, okay, we've got 600-some-odd seats available, that could be a discouragement or that could be um, one of the um, anecdotal truths of reminding us that there are about a 1,000 other people that are paying attention and hearing the word of God every single week through this ministry. So I don't know if you've checked the numbers or what you see on social media and things like that. If you're counting just views, count that as a screen. Now, I don't know about you, but when we were watching church on a screen, we were watching it with eight people. So I know we're not the representative, but uh, it multiplies out. And so um, as so many other things in the church body have proven to be healthy, and sustaining, I have to believe, and this is not just me speaking positively, trying to put a, a leadership spin on it, I have to believe that the Lord is building something substantial and even more mature on the other side of all of this, that no matter what we endure or have to adjust through while we wait to get there or while we're moving in that direction, his plan is far superior to anything that we can strategize for, anything that we can accommodate, any of those things. He is in absolute control of this. Even when I sometimes think he's not, because as I've confessed to you once in a while, I am human. And so, um, you know, I get the same fleshly eyes that despair and wonder and panic and all of those things. And that the Lord keeps sending us these subtle reminders. I've got this. I'm doing what I'm going to do in my church. Are you along for the ride and participating or are you not? And so this is our opportunity. I appreciate Pastor Tom pressing that a little bit more and helping us evaluate what are the reasons why we're here or not here, because I think the Lord cares more about why we do something than always just what we do. Um, the Lord is, is, is stuck on helping us see our motives in life. It exposes what's going on in our hearts. And so um, we are endeavoring to create a greater online presence, online interaction, doing the things for the folks that are at home uh, for health reasons or other um, uh, issues in which they're facing and stuff. But we desperately want to see God's people back in uh, our church and we will get there but we will minister to everyone and anyone along the way uh, quite enthusiastically. So thanks for working with us on that, praying with us along those lines. Thank you for all the support that people continue to uh, share with us as we continue to look at the situation and evaluate day by day, sometimes hour by hour. Uh, none of that is in my notes. Like I said last week, I sometimes feel like I need to say those things and I wish I had given myself an extra five minutes to cover that, so I'll try to be quick. But my mind is really on a, um, a, fi a fictitious character that is representative of so many stories that I've heard, 
We'll call her Kayla because we need a name. And I was trying to think, do I know a Kayla in the church? She'll be offended I'm using her name. So uh, hopefully I haven't forgotten Kayla if you come here. But right now I'm going to say that this fictitious woman's name is Kayla. And she has been struggling from the standpoint of uh, she has relationships in her life. She has interaction with those people that she works with. She has relationships with those people that she goes to church with. She's had boyfriends in the past and all of those kinds of other things that are momentarily satisfying along the way. This isn't uh, someone who's, who's isolated or suffering or starving, but she's starting to pinpoint that there's this missing part of her life as she interacts with other people, that there's this um, uh, dependence or an under or a, a trust in the fact that there are those that have her back regardless of the circumstances, that there are those who accept her as she is, no pretense, no um, uh, having to turn a blind eye to the ugliness that she sometimes can be as, as a human being, but understanding someone's really in it for me. They've got my back. And she's starting to put the pieces together of the fact that her family construct growing up was never supporting that she her her family dynamic was all blown up and so she never understood what it meant to have a sibling who you can actually fight and quarrel with and then forgive each other 10 minutes later those of you siblings in the house and online you know what i'm talking about you know that it's just this weird thing that you can actually get tense you can get in some people's cases you can roll around punch each other and give each other a black eye and then you're hanging out and watching a movie and 10 minutes later it's just the way it goes with siblings and she's starting to recognize i've never had that kind of um security that comes from knowing that someone's got my back. My relationships, she might say, have all been built on a give and take basis that if I'm friendly enough to them, if I pay attention to their stories of how their weekend went, then they'll give me the same courtesy and we'll exchange pleasantries and, and, and those kinds of uh, dynamics. But there's something missing and she's starting to see as she's taking part in her church community and getting to know other people that are not blood related to her but coming under the same uh, umbrella of Jesus Christ, under that same saving faith of Christ, she's starting to see some of those dynamics come into focus. She's starting to sense this is part of what the Lord designed me to hunger for, and he's starting to supply it. Maybe not as naturally as if I'd been in the family for 25 years and we know how to finish each other's sandwiches and all these kinds of things. Frozen people, get me where I'm at? Haven't even seen the movie, but I know that song. Anyway... Uh, so there isn't that kind of comfort, but it's getting there. There's a glimmer of it. There's a, there's something in the distance. Another fictitious guy we'll call Jared had the opposite experience. He grew up in that family environment. He couldn't breathe without somebody knowing what he was thinking, where he was going. The quote unquote accountability in his life was off the charts. He always had a sibling who knew what was up or he'd be missing something. He knew he could go blame his brother why it was missing or his parents cared about where he was going, when he'd be back, whether or not he had the right education or resources to make his future work and things. So they kind of hovered over him a little bit, made sure that he had all these T's crossed and these I's dotted and things. And so Jared was getting to the point, he's like, I'm kind of sick of this. I can't breathe for myself. I can't, I can't live my own life. I can't go out and find out whether or not everything they're telling me is true is actually true. So Jerry goes the opposite way and says, I'm going to venture out and prove to them I don't need their help anymore. I'm my own man. I want full autonomy. I'm just going to go out and figure out my own path. What he comes to appreciate later, as so many of us have, is that 
maybe the accountability wasn't such a negative. Maybe having somebody lose a little bit of sleep over my safety in the middle of the night wasn't necessarily something I should have traded in so quickly. Yeah, there's a normal process of becoming your own man and moving out and taking on some responsibility, but I shouldn't have thumbed my nose at all those people that cared about me so much. There's now something missing in my life that is the security and the distinction of family. You see, our world around us is is trying to get us to find a unity, one that they crave, one that was built within them in the created order, that they want this unity and this this um, this fellowship. And so they're they're going about it in external means through through trying to um, convince us that it's valuable, it's worth fighting for, it's on a it's on a poster here, it's on a news story here, it's in a campaign slogan there that we need to unify, we need to be together. It's like a just a thing of switch we can flip. But God's love is expressed clearest to us in the context of inviting us into a family, taking ownership of us like a caring family would, and then helping us to grow up in that context to find what unity really looks like, something based far deeper and far more secure on anything that I can provide to the equation. Last week in First Peter, we saw that holiness is really best understood in the context of family. There's a distinction to God. That's what holiness is, that God is separate. He's unique from everything in everyone, every other system, every other program, every other idea and thought. He is distinct and separate from it all. So the, in, the instruction to us as God's children was to be holy likewise, because our father is distinct because he is separate from everything else. And what we see, just like in uh, Kayla's instances, as she sees how that family interacts, she understands what she's been missing. And that is part of the message of God's love to the world. Does you see what's going on in this family? Do you see what's missing in your life? It can be yours too. A distinction that creates some element of envy. But Peter is wanting us to see in our text this morning that we can find security in this new family environment, that we can find security in this new ownership, if you will, from our father, our heavenly father. And he's going to put it on the backdrop of eternity. And the the instructive thing about this is that he's going to share with us words that give us great comfort and security. He's going to say a word in verse 20, like foreknown. In other words, like dad knew which way you were going, what was waiting for you down the road, what instruction, what resources, what provisions you would need. Somebody knew this already. Verse 23, he says that, that, that the seed that's been planted in us is imperishable. What security comes from that word? And he even says that the fruit of it remains forever in verse 25. So Peter is going to give us very familial terms to help us understand what is what is um, available to us and expected of us in God's holiness and the security that provides. Let's take a moment. I just want to ask the Lord for his guidance and help as we start moving into our text and uh, and ask the Lord to do some great things with us today. God, I just want to thank you, Lord, that uh, we have come to your word this morning not knowing exactly how to apply your truth, Lord, for each of our individual situations. But Lord, that's where your spirit does his work. So God, I appeal to uh, your power 
your attentiveness, Lord, your care over your children and even those that are on the outside looking in, your love for them, Lord. I pray that they would hear words of life, of hope and truth. And Lord, I pray that they would understand their invitation to join your family in all of its distinction and all of its mighty power. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Last week, we had talked about how Peter's um, approach to uh, writing his sermon, if you will, or teaching his, his audience was nothing different than what we've been doing throughout the centuries. There's something to know about who the Lord is from what the word reveals, and then there's something for us to do with what we know. And that theme certainly continues. For our text this morning, I thought maybe there'd be a couple of things that we can extract that would be beneficial and and crucial for us to know. And then we'll talk about applying it as we go throughout. In verse 22 of 1 Peter 1, he writes this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It is important for God's children to understand that an enviable love has been planted within each and every one of us that have bowed our knee to Jesus Christ, that have surrendered to his lordship, that have received the forgiveness of our sins. What he has now done is he's put something in your life that others will look at and go, I don't have that. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for what? A sincere brotherly love. And it is required of us to define the terms that we see in God's word that are so, uh, we're, we're so quick to dismiss or to, to gloss over. We hear a word like love and you think about how many times and how many ways has love been defined for me just this week alone. In what context have I lived in, whether it be the people I work with or uh, the way in which I've tried to express love this week that kind of blew up in my face, it didn't go so well. How have I received or placed my own definition of what love really means? And then we have to surrender that to what the scripture is really talking about. And, And what we're seeing in our in our verse here, verse 23 is that we have this blend of a brotherly love, what the scriptures would call a Philadelphia love, and we know that Philadelphia is the city of brotherly crime, right? You knew, you got the wrong, you said love, you naive people. <laughs> but isn't that a point that we're making here, is that no matter what you put for a label, doesn't enforce that it's going to turn out that way. We know that the shape that Philadelphia is so often in and what they're known for. I'm sorry for those of you that are from Philly. You make some great cheesesteak. But other than that, your stats aren't really great. It's the city of brotherly love. And this is what Peter is saying is to have a sincere love that acts like a sibling. Someone who will say, I've got your back. Yeah, but I, I stole your Legos. I know. We'll get over that because I can pick on you. But if anybody from out there picks on you, they'll have to come through me. You see, there's a brotherly love or a sisterly love that has this. I've got your back stick to mindset that other people can't contend with. But we also know that sibling love isn't always the most kind, isn't always the most giving. 
that it often gets to be the loudest fights are between siblings and stuff. So, so Peter gives us this, also this understanding through agape, which is self-sacrificing godly love that balances the two out. I've got your back and I will continue to have your back even when it costs me something. In fact, I don't feel like I've expressed love to you unless it's cost me something. And so he says that we need to do this sincerely. There is a, a, a Latin expression in this that has always really um, kind of caught me off guard. For the word sincere, break it up, sincera, um, it, it simply means this. And I want you to take this home. I want you to warm, warm your heart. You can say to people, I am loving you without wax. Isn't that so endearing? Isn't that just beautiful? And watch people's heads do this a little bit. What are you talking about? I don't want you to love me with wax. I don't want you to love me without wax. Just get the wax out of the picture. What are we talking about? What was going on in the day that 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 phrase really took off and meant something was that those that were making either pottery or jars or um, art sculptures and things, they would do things, uh, they would sell it in the marketplace. And the less than scrupulous individual who, instead of being a perfectionist, it said, ah, it's you know, I, I can't put this out. It's just not what I intended. It's, it's got some flaws and they just throw it in the bin. There would be plenty who would say, it's good enough. And in fact, I've got some, some modeling material that I can round off the edges. I can fill in the gaps. I can make it look like what I intended to all along. And so people would buy something, a sculpture, a vase or jar, something like that, thinking what they got was really as good as it really looks. You get it all the way home. You set it in your window and then the hot sun reveals you did not get what you paid for. And so sincere really comes to us in a, in a challenge that says, will your acts of love hold up under the scrutiny or the intensity of the heat that is coming in from the outside? Or will it reveal itself to be one where I'm just covering my tracks here? I'm just trying to get through the day. If I can just make the sale, what you get when you get home, that's on you. If you weren't, scrup- uh, you weren't um, uh, decisive enough or discerning enough to see that maybe I was one of these um, wax people in my sculpting, that's on you. I got your money. So Peter is saying to love like a brother would, love as God would sacrificially do it sincerely. Don't cover your mistakes. Don't try to hide them and be somebody that you're not. Instead, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Paul had told us already in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that we also are these fragile jars with scars and blemishes and cracks. And he says, the reason why God still uses us in this state is because we have this treasure in jars of clay. What is this treasure? It's the glory that he had been talking about in the context. And he says, God has chosen to put his glory in these messy, cracked, warped vessels that could have used a ton of wax to cover their mistakes. Yet God decided not to do that. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not us. If others are going to be loved well, it isn't because we've masked it or because we've played along or we've been insincere about it. Instead, it's because we've allowed him to love through us because we're just not that good at it. We fail at it. He says to love earnestly or, or by intent. 
You and I both know by now, if you've been doing this life thing long enough, you know that your first thought in the morning, your feet hit the floor, isn't so much, hey, I wonder how I can give my life to somebody else today. I wonder who wants to take full advantage of me and I can just be like, have at it. Our first thought, our our starting position, what is born within us and what hasn't been completely removed from us is I want to serve the guy that I'm going to see in the mirror. And I'm hoping all of today just rolls out the red carpet and girls help me, is it Snow White that will have all the birds singing around her and stuff like that? One of those. So, you know, it's it's that kind of experience. I want to walk through and all of nature, all of life is just rolling out the red carpet for me to experience. And all it takes is probably the first 10 minutes of my day to realize life isn't bent towards serving me. And I have a decision to make. Am I in it for me or am I in it for the glory of God? And if I'm in it for the glory of God, who's going to be the recipient of my focus? All of these expressions of love in their purity and their intensity and in their um, covering one another's mistakes and getting having their back and all of those things are the complete opposite of how everyone else and everything else other than the unique holy God defines it. It's it's completely different in its definition. Every other definition of love boils down to lust. That's a strong word because we think of it only in one context, but ultimately every expression of love that is outside of what God has defined to be love is for my own purposes. And that's how lust is defined. I want it. I desire it. I scheme to get it. I won't stop until I've acquired it. So Peter is painting for us a picture. He says, that's old family. That's how we used to do things. But but instead, what we found is that that lust gets us nowhere and we've been given a new love and a new responsibility to act in it accordingly. Jesus said in John 3, 3, that we join this new family through him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's why that phrase has stuck for Christians all these years, born again. We have to understand that that the radical process of, of childbirth is what we go through spiritually. We're entering into a completely new family by birth. This new life that we've been given, this new family that we've been adopted into is produced by two parents as humans are. The parents being, a, we see from John 3 again in Jesus' words that it's the Spirit of God in verse 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So the Spirit of God, who is God himself, the triune Godhead, and his word, as we saw in verse 23 of First Peter where he says, through the living and abiding word of God. So this is how we become members, if you will, of the new family. 
it's through the spirit and the word. And I like to picture anytime I picture um, us coming into this new family. I, I don't know. I can't get this image out of my mind. I picture the old somewhat kind of dilapidated, but very homey kind of feeling really big house with really big porch, the creaky stairs that you walk up and it just looks really comfortable. I'm sure there's at least two rocking chairs on one side. That's in my in my image over there, there's probably some lemonade or tea in a pitcher somewhere and things, a light on and a screen door that creaks open and someone opens it and says, come on in. This place is for you. Come join us. And of course, you picture this giant table spread and the family gathering. They're coming from all different corners of the house and everything running to the table. And you're kind of going, what am I? How is how did I get here? And, and and I picture the the father saying, um, uh, you know, we've we've been waiting for you to come so much that we set aside a couple of gifts, so we know that you feel a little like an outsider, you feel awkward about this, and so we're just doing whatever we can to express how much we desire you to be joining this family. Here are a couple of gifts. They're sitting over here by, of course, the the brick chimneyed fireplace and and everything. And bring the boxes out here. Open these up. I see all this when I imagine that coming to faith in Christ and being ushered into this new family is like us being given a couple of gifts walking into the living room and that being our new nature because the old one was doing us no favors. It was, it was pushing us away from the holiness of God. It was infected with sin. I couldn't do anything but live for me and, and, and build a life around what I desired and what I thought I needed only to see it fail me over and over and over again. And then when I've been released from that and been given a new nature, now I start to have a new hope. Imagine being adopted into that situation. And for the first several days or weeks, this isn't reality. This is going to blow up in my face. Someone's going to take this from me. Someone's going to move me out of here and put me somewhere. I like this family. I don't want to. And all of a sudden that reality starts sitting in. No, this is yours. You're here now. Then a new hope has been given to you. I saw a story a month or so ago, maybe a couple months ago now, because time is all blurred together, but of the, um, you know, the Robertsons are the Duck Dynasty family, and they were, you know, famous on TV for their show and their outspoken Christian beliefs, and of course their prayer together at the table at the end of the ep- each episode and all this kind of stuff. But, and I've followed them a little bit since the show has come to an end and listen to when these guys are just, you know, really, really, uh, stable, faithful, uh, giving believers. And they um, pull no punches about the fact that before Christ, the dad, Phil, was a completely different character. I mean, he needed radical rescue from who he was, and he had hurt so many people and was leading his family in all the wrong ways and stuff and had indiscretions outside of his marriage. The whole thing was there for uh, Phil Robertson, and that's why when you see him now speaking about his faith, how, how blunt and matter-of-fact it is because of what he's been rescued from. And, uh, and, and the news came out, like I said, a couple months ago that he has an adult daughter from another woman that he didn't know. And of course they look into it. He says, yep, it's most likely. And then they kind of confirm all that sort of stuff and everything. But imagine what's going on in this, in this, in terms of a family brand, because we're a media entertainment culture, squeaky clean, we do things right. We pray at the end of the meal. You know, the Lord's bless us with gobs of money and all these kinds of things. Imagine the dilemma or the decision that comes in the flesh that might say, the minute we say, 
we have a new sister, or in Phil's case, I have a new daughter, and it's this, this, and this. How everybody can just go, see, I told you they were no different from everybody else, and how it gets distorted and everything, and what will that do to the family brand and all that kind of stuff. But because they're committed to uh, a lifestyle of grace, uh, it, it seems as though they didn't hesitate at all to embrace this new sister, and in Phil's case, new daughter, and to tell the world we have been given the joy of finding out that we have a new sibling in our family. And, and, and imagine her walking into this family of all that represents that kind of media you know, thing that they're in and their wealth and their fame and everything, trying to wrap her head around, how do I fit here? I saw these people on TV. This is a, a caricature that I now have to get to know as my brother or somebody like that. And yet this is so often how it works in the family of the Lord is that we come with, with all of our baggage. And it's not true in her case, but at least in Phil's case of all the indiscretion that led to her even arriving in this family. There's shame involved in it. There's all kinds of skeletons in our closet. And yet the grace of God is big enough and deep enough to cover all of those things to instead become the story of come in, be a part of us. The world will have to trip over this. They'll have to deal with that. But I would rather them trip over the fact that we're, we're showing love and grace and, and, and unity in what unites us in Christ more than anything else. This is how Peter said it to us early in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We need to understand that an enviable love has been planted within the hearts of God's children. Secondly, I would say that we need to see that this fruit of that which has been implanted will sustain us forever. We already saw in verse 23 of first Peter one, that since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes Isaiah 40. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass. What happens to those? The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Going into chapter 2, Peter does what would have been common in that era of communication and kind of pack in what we might refer to as a vice list. And he's like, I want to stack all this on top of each other, but I'm sandwiching it around the truth of who God is and what our responsibility is. But we're going to deal with this and we're diving in head first. He says, verse 1, he says, so put away, and that's a phrase we'll have to hang on to for a second. Put away all malice or what we just think of as evil. And all deceit, which is also helpful for us to see craftiness. You know, just in terms of just taking this on the side, I'm perplexed every time I see those that would claim to be God's children act like Christians in church in the sense of, yeah, I got your back, I'm a brother or sister in Christ. But then when it comes to our business dealings or how we conduct ourselves out in the world, it's like all bets are off. It's dog eat dog. You got to look out for yourself. And this element of craftiness or taking advantage of 
the uh, the the uh, other people, and that yet somehow saying I belong to the family of God is inconsistent. Peter is saying, put that stuff away, put away craftiness, trying to take advantage of the less understanding or less fortunate, and get rid of your hypocrisy, which is certainly has that acting component, envy, which we know is. Jealousy, don't backbite one another, don't slander one another. Why? Because that's what the old family used to do. Before you walked up this porch, that's all you had. Survival in the orphanage was about, hey, it's dog eat dog. I got to look out for myself. I can't let them get the upper hand. The minute I turn around, my oatmeal cookie's gone. So I'm going to guard it with all my life. I'm not letting this happen to me anymore. That's what you used to have to do. But when you walked up this porch and came in and sat down, we take care of you. We look after you. Being our father, our perfect father in heaven says, I've got this. You do not have to protect yourself. So what's my responsibility? I know this now. What am I supposed to do? He tells us in verse two. So like newborn infants, desire the milk, long for the pure spiritual milk. Spiritual in this, in this context isn't the feeling-based thing that we have defined spirituality to mean. It actually has a heavy component of reasonableness, rationality. Desire the word of God that makes sense. Desire the truth that comes through, that, it may, that you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have, or it could also be said, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's saying this is a, a living word that you've been giving. It's a given. It's an abiding word that doesn't perish or fade away. In quoting that passage from Isaiah 40, he's telling his listeners in the diaspora, he's saying, God's word is the only thing that's going to sustain you. God's word is the only thing that won't fail. It, it won't fade away. And ironically, although I'm sure strategically on Peter's part, Isaiah 40 is written right on the heels of some very difficult news for God's people to hear. You're about ready to head into exile. Things are going to change in your comforts and your manner of life and all of those sorts of things. And so this word comes in as hopeful promise. My word doesn't fade away. That it's not as flimsy as the blades of grass that as soon as you cut them turn to hay. That's not what's going to happen to my word, he says. And Peter is also using this passage to, to show us how incapable you and I are of really producing life. We can have families. We can birth children. We can get people under the same room. We can have them live in the same house. But you and I both know that we can't make people get along. We can't make people have one another's back. We can't make people enjoy the benefits of being in a family. We can't force those things. So Peter's saying only the word of God can do that. So Peter wants us to appreciate it more. He wants us to desire it more. There are several metaphors given to us in scripture for the word of God, and I'm just setting aside four of them now for us to consider. We already saw that it's milk in verse 2. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1 that it's more than that. It's solid. He says, but I, brother, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not spiritual food, for you're not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready for it. Yet, you're, or for you are still in the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, 
Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human, in the old family way, the way you used to have to do things before you join this family? Verse 4, he says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, no, I'm actually of Apollos. I like his message better. Are you not being merely human? So Paul says the word of God is solid. It's meat. Jesus says that men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The inference here is that the word of God feeds us, supplies us even better than our earthly bread. And of course, the psalmist says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You can see that the father is putting on a giant spread at the table. And he's welcoming us as we walk through the front door and we receive our gifts. And he says, now sit and eat. This is what we do. This is what we feed on. This is the time that we gather. And the weight of importance that's placed on God's holy word, it can't be watered down or diluted by us, by those claiming to value the ways of the family of God. If the father has made it clear that we eat at a certain time, we sit at this table, we eat together. We can't say we love this family and never join them for dinner. So Peter's instruction for us is to crave spiritual food. And again, in that, in that human terminology that he gives us, and we picture our family environments, he says it's like infants that are desiring to grow up. Infants always want to be uh, ready for the next stage. As babies grow up, they always want to do more than we think they're capable of. They're desiring to move forward and to, and to grow. And he's saying you would do well. In fact, you would be demonstrating a family, family characteristic if you said, I want to grow up. I don't want to be held back. And I picture when he talks about infants desiring the milk, you've all seen as infants are fed and things, you know, the bottle is kind of out there. Baby can't really see what's coming because they haven't developed that kind of sight. They certainly have no recognition of what that bottle is supposed to look like. But as it gets closer, there's something built within them that says, that smells right. That's for me. And their heads start freaking out. Where, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And their little lips are going. It's my wife and I's favorite thing to watch in this newborn stages is that little baby just chomping around going like little birds. And as soon as they latch on, they're in, they're done. They're like, there we go. That's what I needed. Now I'm attached to the life source. This is what Peter is saying. This is the word of God made available to us. It's, it's being invited to the table and looking and going, I can't believe I get to eat all this. And he goes, not only do I want you to enjoy it, I want you to desire it. I want you to look forward to mealtime. Be like that baby who can't get enough. There's so many contrasts that Peter's throwing at us here that make it so clear that there's a distinction between the two family structures. He says to have a pure heart instead of the one that you used to have to rely on that was full of deceit. That the, the truth and the promise that we have is imperishable as opposed to the, the one that you used to rely on that would die on the vine. He says in the fruit of those things, the outcome of your life would just wither while this one remains. Living within the environment of the family of God is so radically different from all other families or world systems that we must recognize that bringing any of the old methods up the porch and saying, hey, thanks for letting me in your house. I got a few things that I wanted to share with you the way we used to do things in the orphanage. And that family says, we don't need to do that here. It's utterly pointless for you to have to rely on those old systems because of what we've built here. But somehow, in some uh, miraculous way, God allows those family dynamics from his family to go into the world and make a difference. 
but it never seems to help the other way around. Because true love is self-sacrificing and is protecting of other people. While worldly love is actually, as we've already discussed, boiled down to lust and reveals itself to be self-protecting and greedy. There's no blend of the two. In a very difficult passage for, for us to consume and for us to face on James chapter 4, there's 10 verses that I'm going to read through with very little commentary um, for time and just uh, it's, it's probably not necessary even at this juncture. Um, but I think it would be important for us to take this as a bit of an assignment, if you will, this week and say, okay, Lord, if I'm going to hold up James chapter 4, these first 10 verses as a mirror into my soul, into the way I've conducted myself in relationships or in my attempts to to exercise what I thought to be love, help me to honestly look in this mirror of James chapter four and see, am I doing this as the Lord would, would have me do? James gets very, very direct and uses some very tough language for us to get to the, the heart of all this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your lusts, as it's also translated, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you freak out a little bit. You throw a tantrum or you just post something negative on Facebook. No, it says you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But even when you do ask, he says, and do not receive, it's because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Gulp. Do you not know that friendship with the world, trying to get back to that old family, don't you know that that is enmity with God, that there's no place for that in this family? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Imagine a father who's provided a spread, who's provided all the comforts and security of home. And every time we show up to dinner and he says, sit down and eat, we're like, oh, I stopped and went through the drive-thru on my way. I'm good. How would he not get jealous of all that he's provided? Because every time he's offered something, I've taken it on the cheap and provided it for myself. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Wash your hands before dinner, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The point of our time together in this text this morning is bigger than just a get along, act like a family. Come on, show some unity. It's actually recognizing that our family in Christ is so radically different from everything that we've left behind. Our old values and the practices that came along with them, they will rear their ugly head from time to time, but we can count on it. They will result in pain and suffering. And we need to see that pain and suffering as somehow like a light on our dashboard that says something's wrong. 
Embrace the fact that this hurts, that how you've approached this in your relationship, how you've gone back to the old orphanage way of, of approaching people and protecting yourself and, and looking out for number one, it'll cause that pain and frustration. Therefore saying, look at this, surrender this to the cross. What Jesus has done for you, you can do for others. We have two responsibilities, according to what I can see here. The first is that you and I need to be willing to show love. We need to be siblings who have each other's back, but we also need to be sacrificers who act as God on behalf of other people. We need to show love. But we also need to desire truth. We can change our desires. We don't have to buy the mantra that we keep hearing. Hey, the heart wants what the heart wants. What can we do about it? The reality is if Peter is giving us a command in the spirit of Christ, it's speaking through him. It means you and I can change our affections and our desires and we can start valuing the word of God as the thing that will always endure, that will never wither away. And we can say, I want to start craving that. It might take me a little while to change my appetites. It might take me a little bit of effort in order to really see the value in it and and dismiss the other junk that I'm taking in. But I will get there. Why? Because I desire it as a newborn desiring milk. And the end result of this is that you and I get to look back and when we're in heaven, we can say, we grew up in a wonderful family. I remember times around the table. I remember gift giving. I remember the love that we showed to each other, the sacrifice that we demonstrated to each other. I remember welcoming new births into the family and all the joy that would spread throughout. I remember us growing up together, moving towards the next phases of our lives, growing up into maturity surrendering our own wills for what was good for those that were in our clan. And then others on the outside that haven't had that experience, sort of the Kalas of the world, or maybe even the Jareds who have forgotten what they had when they, when they did have it, they'll be drawn through an unmistakable craving, that which has been put in them way before they were born even, for that which they have missed their entire lives. And then they'll only need to walk away from their old family, what we've defined in the past as the world, the flesh, and the devil, to walk away from that, to abandon that, walk up the porch stairs, let that crickety uh, screen door kick open and say, come on in, welcome to the family. This is the beauty and the benefit of what the Lord is building here on earth, giving us a glimpse of all that he's invited us to, even in the heavenlies for all of eternity. Let's close our time in prayer together as I do. I'm going to ask uh, worship leaders to come and, and lead us out with, uh, with song. But God, I want to thank you, Lord, for what you've done in your word today. I thank you, Lord, for giving us um, truth in a context that we can all picture. Lord, it doesn't mean that we've all had great family backgrounds or or peaceful, secure experiences, but we know what we miss when we don't have it. So either way, Lord, this metaphor, this image, or even dare I say this reality plays out well for us because we, we understand more, Lord, what you're trying to accomplish through your church, through brothers and sisters who are all uh, only made common through the blood of Christ. So help us, Lord, to see this, help us to embrace it, but also, Lord, help us to exercise the same love that we've been shown, the grace and the forgiveness that we've experienced at the cross. 
I pray for those, Lord, that haven't received you as Savior, that haven't laid their lives down, who haven't abandoned the old practices and frustrations of the old family, to help them to understand that they are being welcomed up the porch, that the door is open wide for them. They have but to just surrender their wills and all those old systems and all that's born within them, that they can just shrug off and say, Lord, in the cross, in your sacrifice, you give me new life. I can leave it all behind. So I pray, Lord, that today would be a day of salvation for so many. I pray that they would pray where they are, wherever they are. Lord God, forgive me of my sin. And Lord, thank you so much for providing a way for me to be welcome into the family. I know I don't get there on my own. I know I don't make my own way, Lord, that it's only been provided, but I've received the invitation. I surrender, Lord, and I pray that you would bring me along the path to lead me to understand what I've joined, what this family is made up of. And Lord, give me your spirit to do all that I don't know how to do in my flesh. Guide me in this endeavor in Jesus' name. Lord, I just pray that there would be some that have received your salvation today as a result of that prayer. I pray that they would desire the word of God because now you've planted their spirit within them to have that craving as well. Illuminate them in all truth, Lord, so they come to greater understanding of their heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for this morning, our beautiful weather. Thank you for giving us hope in strange days, Lord. We cling to it in Jesus' name. Amen.